Amen. Get your Bibles out if you brought them. I'm going to make a quick pitch for bringing your Bible to church. All right? Now, I know we've got, most of the time, we've got words on the screen, and you can see the scriptures up there. But uh, it's something wonderful to see it in your own Bible and, and know where it is and go home and read it again. Some of you like to take notes in your Bible. Some of you like to use a notebook. But either way, if you're going home and you're re-digging up, and re-going over the things that you've already heard and already seen, it's important that you know that this isn't somebody's opinion. It's important that you can see for yourself that this is what the Bible says, that you can go home and not just read what we read, but read what came before it and what came after it so that you can see the full context, and it'll change your life. Because if you ever noticed, sometimes the seed, Jesus said the word that is preached is like a seed being sown into the soil, and the soil is our hearts. And sometimes when the seed is sown, one of the greatest things you can do is kind of turn over some of that soil and, and kind of go over it again and let that seed go deeper. And that usually happens for me when I go back and I read it again and I hear it again. And somehow in that process, when I talk about it with my friends, it becomes more real and deeper to me than it was before. I'd encourage you to do that. So bring a Bible if you've got one. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to go get one. If you, if you can't afford one, come to us. We will get you a Bible. We just want you to know that it's important that you have the Bible in your own hands. Get a Bible you can understand. You know, get a Bible that's accurate, but a Bible that you can understand. And I'm sure if you're looking for a Bible that fits all your criteria, you can go to the Christian bookstore and they will hook you up. But it's important that you're able to see it for yourself. The Bible says that the, the Bereans were more noble than some of the other ones. Some of the other cities and some of the other churches, it says the Bereans were more noble-minded because they studied for themselves to see if the words that were preached were true. So when they heard somebody quote and somebody said, well, you know, the, the scriptures say this, they went back and they checked. And they weren't checking it. They weren't fact-checking, hoping to prove somebody wrong. You know, there's those kind of people. Those kind of people will always find something wrong with everything. And if you're, really, if you're really excited about finding something wrong, you'll find something wrong. You could find something wrong with what Jesus said. You know, you can nitpick everything, and, and, and you could get in that attitude. I don't encourage you to be that way. But, but the Bereans were noble because they went home and they said, if this is true, I want to see it with my own eyes. And when they did that in faith, not in doubt, but in faith, they were changed. And the Bible says to, I mean, really, if we take that, if they're noble-minded, we should be imitators of that kind of person, that we go home and we study it, we read it again, we pray over it. You know, if there's something you don't understand, ask questions. If there's something you don't understand, ask the Lord to reveal it to you. All of these things are part of you becoming a Christian that grows and not just a Christian that you know, watches and spectates, all right? So get those Bibles open to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We've got the words on the screen for you, but we're going to jump right into Acts chapter 9. If you've been with us the past few months, we've been going through the book of Acts. We just finished hearing about what God did in the city of, in the, sorry, the province of Samaria and in one of the main cities in Samaria that Philip went to. And uh, we saw a great move of God as God opened a door to a whole new group of people. And I believe that God is still doing that today. There are people that are keys to open doors to other segments of society, other cultures, other places. There's often one person that is a key to a whole bunch of people. And so as we see this in the book of Acts, we see that Philip went and he preached and he, he went to Samaria, not because somebody sent him, but rather because the church was being scattered. 
If we'll go back and remember why the church was scattered, it was because of a man named Stephen who began to preach the gospel boldly, without fear, without timidity, without watering it down, he preached. And he made some people mad when he preached. So mad that they put him on trial. And as he told the story of the gospel, even from the beginning, and he began to make his defense by the Holy Spirit speaking through him, he made a defense that was so powerful that the Bible says they were cut to the quick. In the book of Acts earlier, there was a group of people that listened to Peter, and it says they were pierced to the heart. And they fell on their knees and said, brethren, what must we do to be saved? This same group were pierced. They were cut to the very quick. Cut to the quick means pierced right to the core. The same thing happened to these religious leaders. The only difference was their heart was hardened rather than softened. And it wasn't because God just didn't want them to believe. It was because they chose that we're not going to accept this. And as they rejected the word of God, you don't reject the word of God and stay the same. Whenever the word of God is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, you either move closer to God, you either grow, you either are changed by it, or you resist it and you're hardened by it. The scripture says in Hebrews, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. You can't hear the voice of God without either being changed or being hardened. The people on the day of Pentecost were changed, were born again. The religious leaders that listened to Stephen's message were hardened. One of those men was Saul. And Saul held the people's coats as they stoned this man to death for preaching the truth. The Bible says he was in hearty agreement. That means there wasn't a part of him that didn't fully agree with killing Stephen for what he said. We find out later, and we're about to read about his conversion. Most of you know the story, at least a little bit of it, of how Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus. One of the cool things is, is that Saul tells this story a few times. He later became known as Paul. He tells this story a few times throughout the book of Acts. And in one of the stories, and we've talked about this before, but one of the times he tells it, he recounts how Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you don't use the word goad often, I don't blame you. Not many of us do. But to goad means to poke, to prod, like you're moving an animal that just doesn't want to move. You guys know the steps. Some of you are ranchers. You know, you, you get them to go. Some of them are friendly and, you know, they'll go. Some of them will go just because you're walking that way. Some of those bulls, you got to grab their tail, give it a little twist, push them forward. And some of them, you need something sharp or electric <laughs> to get them to move. Saul was so resistant because Saul was educated. And there's nothing wrong with being educated. I, you should be educated, but Saul was so educated in religion and he was so uh, sure of his stance with God that he resisted the, the revelation of the Messiah. He resisted the fact that the Messiah could have already come. He was so stuck in his ways as a good Pharisee that he couldn't, he couldn't see this Christianity being the real deal. And as he sits there and listens to Stephen preach, he too is being poked by the Holy Spirit. The only thing is the Holy Spirit doesn't stop poking him. How annoying is that? I know I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but there's people that come into the church and immediately are drawn by, by the words that God is saying in his word. They're drawn by the spirit. And there are some that come into church and their first instinct is to be really mad. 
Some of you are here today, and I've talked to some of you. Some of you, your first time at church, you got mad. And it wasn't because somebody, you know, you know it wasn't because the ushers gave you the customary slap across the face when you came in. Because we told them not to do that anymore. No, it's not because anybody treated you bad. It's because something was said that just you couldn't let go of, and it bugged you, and it bugged you. And either you receive it or you reject it, but if you reject it, it's going to bug you. It's going to make you feel angry. Saul was so angry, he began to persecute the church, began to throw them in prison, began to kill some of them. So he's not the guy you want hanging around your city. He's not the guy you want to run into in an alley. This is a guy who's become so angry at the Christians that he's persecuted them more than anyone else. And it all started. He was not persecuting anybody until he heard that message. And that message has been bugging him and the Holy Spirit has been poking him. And the Bible says he began to kick against the goads. He began to fight the Holy Spirit by fighting his people. But something's about to happen to this man, and we're going to read it in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. You know, if you were reading the book of Acts for the first time, and you didn't know who Saul was, you didn't know who Paul was, but you were just reading it as a first-time reader, this would be a very shocking chapter. See, most of believers now know this story. But can you imagine the guy that a couple chapters earlier was the main villain? The main persecutor, the terrorist, is now the guy we're about to read about a dramatic conversion. This is one of the most shocking chapters in the Bible. And it's a great one to read for all of us because we all realize no matter how far we were, nobody's too far for the grace of God. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says this. As Paul, Saul rather, has been persecuting the church, it says Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now listen to that. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I'll tell you why he had to do this. Because Saul, because when Saul first started persecuting the church, everybody was in Jerusalem. This is where everybody was. This the whole church was in Jerusalem. When he began to persecute them, what does the Bible say? It says they got scattered. So his prey is getting away. Before that, he just had to be in one city. But now they've scattered. So he is going to go city by city and find every last one of them. One of the first places he goes is one of the main cities in Syria, which is Damascus. He asks for letters so that when he gets letters, he can present them to the priests at that synagogue and they'll give him permission to go round up whoever he wants to round up and punish how he sees fit to punish. Now, this is all illegal in the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire has a delicate relationship with the Jews. The Roman Empire knows that the Jewish people were a passionate people. To give you one example... There was one point where the Roman Empire had, emperor had sent his troops through uh, Judea, the province of Judea, and customarily when the Roman uh, army marched through a place, they had their banners, and they had all their, their different banners, and their, uh, some of them represented what division they were in, and some of them represented the Roman army itself. They would have had the eagle standard up there, but also they had some banners and some symbols that had the image of the emperor on them. And as they walked through Judea, the Jews were so passionate. This was before Jesus came. The Jews were so passionate 
for God's law that they saw that and they, they knew that the Lord said, you will not ever have any graven images. You will not have any idols. So, so because they had been so prone in their history to fall into idolatry, I mean, you know that, right? You look in the Old Testament, and the Israelites were constantly falling into idolatry. I mean, it's amazing how God would deliver them. Give it a few years, and they're back to copying the, the nations around them. Moses goes up the mountain. They've seen the power of God. They've seen God as a pillar of fire, as a, as a pillar of smoke. They've seen this. And then Moses goes up the mountain, and they don't see God, and they don't see Moses, and they freak out. And they build an idol. And it's not even an idol of a mighty, it's not even like a mighty lion. It's not even an idol like of a dinosaur. It's an idol of a calf. No offense. I like beef as much as the next guy, but I don't look at a calf and go, oh, you mighty, oh, wow, I want to bow down and worship you. Moses comes down, he's so ticked off, he throws the Ten Commandments, the tablets, he throws them and breaks them on the ground. And he says, what are you doing? And Aaron, who was supposed to be in charge, supposed to be the pastor in charge here, high priest Aaron, says, we threw our gold into the fire and this jumped out. Because Aaron wasn't much better than your toddler at giving excuses. And this is what they did. You know, you might know the story of how Moses interceded for the people as they began to grumble against God and snakes that God had been holding back. God had been keeping the snakes from biting them as they went through a snake-ridden territory. As they began to grumble, they stepped out of the protection of God and into their own protection. And you know your own protection does not protect you from snakes. Those snakes began to come out of the desert and to bite them. And they were not just garter snakes. They were very, very venomous, poisonous snakes. As those snakes came out and bit them, Moses interceded that these people wouldn't die, and the Lord told them to, to raise a standard, raise a, raise a, a bar that would have uh, almost in the shape of a cross. He raised this up and uh, put this copper serpent around it, and as they looked on this serpent, they would be healed. We know that was symbolic of what Jesus would do because the Bible says that that was a curse, but symbolic of what Jesus would do taking our curse upon himself because the Bible says cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and as we looked upon him, we were healed. Well, here's the thing. Years later, hundreds of years later, we find out that the Israelites started worshiping this stupid thing and they called it copper thing. That was their fancy word for it. That was their real inventive word for it. So... That was a long rabbit trail to get to this point. That as the Romans marched through with these images, the, the Israelites, the Jews had learned, we can't be trusted with this stuff. Let's stay as far away from idols as we can. So the Jews laid their necks. The elders came out. The elders of the city came out and met the Roman army. And they said, you can't fly these things coming through our province. The Roman Empire says, Who, who's going to stop us? Who do you think you're talking to? And the elders laid their necks down on the road, and they said, you can chop our heads off, or you can take the images down. But we're not going to live while you let those idols go through our city, go through our province. That's how strong they were. That's how passionate they were against idolatry. That's how passionate they were to stand up for what they believed. So the Romans are afraid of these guys. 
They don't want to cause trouble. So when Saul goes around persecuting and killing Christians, it's highly illegal. But the same thing that happened to Jesus where Pontius Pilate said, I wash my hands, I'm not going to stop you. These Romans didn't want to revolt. So they just let Saul and they let the Jews do what they want to do within limits. Let them solve their own religious disputes. So Saul's rounding people up. He gets letters so that he can go to Damascus and round more Christians up. As he goes to Damascus, Jerusalem to Damascus is a long journey. He takes some friends with him. We're about to read about what happens here. It says in verse 3, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Smart words, huh? He doesn't know who he is, but he knows it's the Lord. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, that's Damascus, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. We find out that these guys really didn't, uh, didn't know what they heard. They didn't hear the words that Saul heard. They heard a voice, but they couldn't make it out. They're speechless. They're stunned. This is one of the great pranks that Jesus pulls on us, on Saul. He blinds him, then tells him to walk into the city. That's real fair, Jesus. Thank you. Well, we know that this Saul had to be brought to a point where he could recognize who Jesus really was. If it took blinding him, it took blinding him. One of the other things was that uh, Jesus had every intention as soon as he got into the city to heal the man from blindness. And one of the proof that he was in the right place was that God was going to send a disciple to lay his hands on this man. He was going to be healed. So Jesus tells him to go into the city. They lead him by the hand and they bring him into Damascus. He's come from Jerusalem to Damascus. And little does he know he's not going to visit Jerusalem for another three years. This trip has changed his life forever. As he goes into Damascus, it says he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. That's how shook up he was by the whole experience. Can you imagine just finding out that you'd been fighting against the God that you thought you were fighting for? Would you want to eat? Would you want to drink? This man is probably so racked with guilt and confusion, but that's all about to change. He can't see, he's not eating, he's not drinking, but something's about to happen. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision. This is not the same Ananias that dropped dead in the service uh, uh, before. This is, obviously, this is later in the timeline. This is Ananias of Damascus, okay? So he is, he's pretty much a nobody, guys. He never pops up again. He's not an apostle. He doesn't have... Um, a specific title in the church. He's just a believer. And when I say just a believer, I want you to know that just a believer is more than a conqueror. Just a believer can do the works that Jesus commanded them to do. Just a believer can do greater works because that's what Jesus said they would do. So we should never say, well, I'm just a believer. I'm not one of those people with the microphone because here we're about to see how God uses, just like he used Philip, how God uses a man that is not 
trained as a preacher, that was not commissioned as an apostle, yet Jesus said, these signs will follow everyone that believes. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. They will cast out evil spirits. They will speak with new tongues. He says all of these things, not just about the apostles, but about believers. And he says this, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Now remember, Ananias lives in Damascus, but he's heard about this guy from Jerusalem. From many. He's well aware Saul is the most feared and hated man amongst the Christians. Now, I say hated, but he's, I'm hoping that the Christians are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, to love those that persecute them, to bless them, to pray for them. But he sure gave them a reason to hate them, hate him. He's one of the most feared men amongst the Christians. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about this guy. You're asking me to go visit him. And I know right now we can't see, but there's going to be a time where he will. And I'm not looking forward to that. He says, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias realizes that in this moment he could be signing his own warrant for arrest and possibly death. Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Can we do that? Would you willingly go visit the guy who came to your city just to arrest people like you? That's why he came. Now the Lord spoke to you, and I hope we all say, if the Lord speaks, we're going to obey. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he shall suffer for my namesake. That's not saying that the Lord says, I'm going to make him hurt for all he did for me. No, he's saying that he will endure no matter what's thrown against him. This guy is going to keep going. I'm going to show him that this man is going to go to even the emperor for me. He's going to go to the other sides of the world. This man is going to be the real deal. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And just stop and think of what a great step of faith that was. Isn't it cool that God set the whole thing up for him? We just read how God set the whole encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian. He set it up for him. He prepared the, the Ethiopian man's heart. He prepared him for Philip to preach. And here the same thing has happened. God has been preparing Saul. He even told him what the guy's name was that was going to lay his hands on him. For three days he's been waiting. Ananias shows up. He knocks on the door. He says, brother, lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So now think about how cool this is. Saul knows the guy's name that's going to come visit him. Ananias already knows what happened to Saul on the road. Can you imagine when those two get together and start comparing stories and realize they both know each other's story? Isn't that awesome? The Holy Spirit just showed them. And as they do this, he says, Brother Saul, what a word. See, Ananias is beginning to put his full trust in the Holy Spirit. 
He's getting over his prejudices. He's getting over everything he knows. And because Jesus said, I called this man. He's an instrument of mine. Something's happened to him. He's been praying. Ananias doesn't say, Saul. He doesn't say, hey, you. He says, brother, Saul. Could you do this? We talked last week for a little bit about Jonah going to the Assyrians and how cruel the Assyrians were. And how Jonah had to go preach to them that if they repent, God would be merciful. But if they didn't, they'd be destroyed. And how Jonah was hoping that they wouldn't repent because he wanted to see them destroyed because they deserved to be destroyed. And how instead God showed them mercy because they did repent. And Jonah was angry at God. Well, can you imagine if you're Ananias and the number one terrorist who is not just targeting your region. No, he's targeting people exactly like you. He's targeting your belief. He's targeting you. Saul was on his way to Damascus. Apparently, Ananias is a believer God can use. So I'm imagining Ananias' name is known by a few people around Damascus. So guess who probably is number one arrest on Saul's list when he gets there? Ananias. He's probably one of the first guys to get arrested. Now, God tells you, go show up at his door. And I want you to think about the transformation that happened between the moment that Ananias was arguing with God. Now, I know you don't think that's what happened, but that's what happened. He says, Lord, he had already been given marching orders. Nothing more needs to be said. But he says, Lord, this is the guy I've been hearing about. As if God has no clue, like God doesn't have that intel. Oh, that, that's the same Saul? I almost made a bad mistake. I just about healed that guy. Can you believe? Oh, man, thank you, Ananias. <laughs> We've been there. You have those moments that the Lord speaks, and you argue back, and you go, here are all the reasons. You're wrong. And I know you didn't think about it, but here's why I'm not the guy to do that. Anybody ever feel that way? You argue with God, I'm not your guy. I'm not your gal. I'm not your person. Do not ask me to do this, and here's why. And Ananias says, I should not be going to this guy because this is who he is. From that moment to this moment, something's changed in his heart. I want you to think about the great, great power of God working through him, the love of God working through him, the grace of God working through him, that this man all of a sudden goes from seeing Saul as enemy number one to brother Saul. And that all happened in a few steps from his house to Saul's house or to Judas's house where Saul was staying. In that period of time, everything has changed. Can I take a bracket, a brief intermission and ask you this question? Are you willing to think about people the way Jesus thinks about those people? Are you willing to put aside what you know about them? Are you willing to put aside what you've heard about them? Are you willing to be put aside if they've talked against you or opposed you specifically? Are you willing to put all that aside and see them as the Lord sees them? Because that's exactly what Ananias did. He went from seeing him as an enemy to a brother without ever talking to him. And many of us will say, I'll forgive that person. But they, as being, I'm waiting until they come and apologize. I'm going to be the bigger Christian. I could hold this against them for the rest of their lives. But the minute they, if they come and apologize to me, then, Lord, for you, because I'm such a servant of God, for you, I'll let it go. Paul didn't apologize to this man. Saul didn't apologize to this man. 
They didn't have a chance to have a conversation. Ananias walks in the room, lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, I already know what happened to you. And Brother Saul, he says, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight. And what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a good deal. You're getting the combo, Saul. You're not just getting healed. You're getting saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Supersized. Look what it says here. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and he was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Remember, he hasn't been able to eat. What changed? Why do you think he was not able to eat? Um, this is my opinion. Understand this is my opinion, okay? The Bible doesn't say this is why he wasn't able to eat. But I think part of it is that uh, this guy is racked with the knowledge that he's been killing servants of the Lord he thought he was serving himself. Just like we said a few minutes ago, I don't think I'd be able to eat at that point either. That guilt, that shame is weighing him down. He can't eat, he can't drink. The other side of it is he's praying. So perhaps part of it is he's fasting and praying, saying, Lord, whatever you want. But from the moment he's baptized, he can eat now. Something's changed. Something's lifted off of him. Something's different in him. He's not full of that guilt and shame anymore. He's released from it. We find out, because this tells part of the story, we find out when he retells his story that he even argued with Jesus and said, Jesus, I've persecuted some of your people. I've killed some of them. And the Lord said, I've picked you anyways. Isn't it interesting that God said to Ananias, he is a chosen instrument of mine? He didn't say someday he'll be a chosen instrument. He says he is now. See, God has seen you long before you saw who you were going to be yourself. The Lord saw this. Now you still had choices to make. You still could turn away. But God saw your end from the beginning, and he already knew you. And the Bible says, he told, to, he told Jeremiah, I formed you in your mother's womb. I've already placed my words inside of you. So you're going to be a prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah argued with him and said, Lord, I'm too young. Lord, I'm not a good speaker. And the Lord said to him, I have placed my words in your mouth. He doesn't say, someday I'm going to put words in your mouth. He says, I've already put them there. Your job is to speak them. God had already prepared Saul. Saul fought against it, and he fought against it. But he says, this is a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to speak to kings. He's going to speak to Gentiles, and he's going to speak to his own people. It says, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Talk about an awkward meeting. Yeah. Anybody think that might be a little awkward? Showing up? Hey, everybody. <laughs> what brings you to Damascus? What was your name again? My name's Saul. Saul, interesting. We know, we've heard of a guy named Saul. Yep, same Saul. And uh, turns out the reason I'm in Damascus, since you ask, was to arrest all of you. But I'm not going to anymore. Think about this. The church has gone underground. They're not meeting as publicly as they were before. So what kind of guts does it take to invite this guy to the place you're meeting? Don't take him to my house. <laughs> we're having our meeting in a special location this, this week because we have a special guest that we're bringing. They've got to trust Ananias that this conversion is real. 
Because he could be a spy. This could be his next plan. I'll infiltrate them. I'll, I'll go with them. They've got to trust Ananias that this guy is not lying. And this is going to happen again to him too. So he goes, and for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Verse 20 says, immediately he began to proclaim, immediately, he didn't take a break. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. All those hearing, them, hearing him began to continue to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus was the Christ. He went to Damascus to shut down Christianity. He began in Damascus to be the greatest voice of Christianity. He went to shut down the followers of Jesus. He became the number one follower of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Now, in the next verse... It says, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might be put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Now it says, when he came to Jerusalem, I want you to know that something's happened here that we find out in the book of Galatians that you don't find out here. Because if you're reading this just like this, you think he went... From being blind guy, or being terrorist, to blind guy, to believer, and all of a sudden he had disciples. But what you don't know is that he tells us later in the book of Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, that he actually went away to Arabia for a while, for a period of three years at least. He went away to Arabia and came back to Damascus. And the Lord appeared to him, the Lord taught him some things, showed him some things. Then he came back to Damascus. That's probably what we're seeing here is after he's come back to Damascus, he's got some people that are with him now. He comes back to Damascus and now he's about to make his first trip back to Jerusalem. He hasn't been to Jerusalem for years. Jerusalem, the place where his old friends are. Jerusalem, the place where the chief priest that sent him to go get the Christians is. Jerusalem, the most dangerous place he could go. Not only this, but he's yet to meet the Christians at Jerusalem. He's yet to meet any of the apostles. And none of them really trust him yet. So you're going into a city where your old friends hate you and your new friends don't like you either. Imagine how fun that is. Your old friends think you're a traitor. Your new friends don't quite trust you. So he comes to Jerusalem. And he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They all thought he was a spy. Not believing that he was a disciple. Why didn't they believe that? Because it would be a perfectly natural thing to do, to try to find out where they were meeting, to pretend you were one of them. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe he was for real. But Barnabas took a hold of him. Now, Barnabas isn't this guy's real name. Does anybody know his real name? What's that? No. His name was Joseph. Sorry, I didn't mean to be a quiz master. I just thought maybe somebody knew. Um, Joseph, but Barnabas is his, uh, his nickname. Barnabas is the name that's been given to him. His original name was Joseph, but his name has now been changed to Barnabas. This is his nickname, and the reason they gave him his nickname Barnabas, because Barnabas meant son of encouragement. 
Barnabas was a guy just like Ananias. He's just a regular guy who all of a sudden has, has, has not been one of the picked, one of the people picked to lead the church. He's not one of those people that's been uh, given a special title, but they know that this man has a gift inside of him to encourage people like nobody they've ever seen. And this Barnabas sees something in, in Saul, who's later to become known as Paul. He sees something in this ex-terrorist. And while none of the other Christians trust this guy, because this is the guy that arrested our family members, this is the guy that put us to death, Barnabas takes him. And he took hold of him. And he brought him to the apostles. And he described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, aren't you, don't you think that a guy like Saul would be thankful for a guy like Barnabas? He comes back to Jerusalem. His old friends hate him. His new friends don't believe he's for real. And it took a man named Barnabas to take hold of him and introduce him to the apostles. In, these, in this chapter, we've seen two people who were just regular folks. We see Ananias that God uses to bring this man to Jesus. God uses this guy to lay his hands on his eyes so that he might be healed. In this story, we see a guy named Barnabas who chooses to take that step of faith and trust God and take a hold of this guy that nobody else trusts. And I want us to ask ourselves this big question. It's very similar to what we said before. Are we willing to open our hearts to the people that the Lord has opened his heart to? Even if those people previously were your enemy. Even if those people previously were the ones that persecuted you. Even if those people you don't think should be trusted, you don't think they deserve your mercy, you don't think they deserve your love. Are you willing to get over yourself and realize there is one Lord that makes that call and it's not you? You don't get to decide who gets mercy. You don't get to decide. In fact, Jesus said, everyone that persecutes you, you pray for them. Everyone that hates you, you bless them. I flipped those around. It says, it says, pray for those that hate you. Bless those that persecute you. Can you imagine how hard that is? Like I said on Sunday, we're not a group of people who believe that prayer is just a ritual that doesn't do anything. Because I don't know about you, but I believe that when we pray, things happen. So when Jesus tells him, pray for these people that hate you, and you believe something's going to happen, it's hard to pray for them. Because he's not saying, you know, pray that that the Lord would bless them with a lightning bolt through the chimney. (laughs) Pray that the Lord would bless them with a knife accident. No, he's saying pray for them for their good. Well, that's okay if you're somebody who's in a dead religion where you think just pray a bunch of words and nothing ever happens. But I believe that prayer, and I've seen it how many times over and over throughout our lives, that prayer changes things. So how hard is it to pray for somebody you don't like, knowing that if you pray, God will act and do something for them? It says, bless those that persecute you. And we use bless so tamely, like when people sneeze and bless you. And and you know what? I encourage you to do that if you really know what blessing is. Because according to the scripture, when you bless someone, you are bestowing the favor of God. You are, when you bless someone, they're supposed to be better for it. It'd be easier if we believed blessing was just a nice thing you say. And sometimes blessing is a nice word. But in the scripture, when Abraham, when when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, 
Abraham was not the same guy. When the Lord blessed Adam and Eve, they weren't the same. When anyone blessed somebody in the Bible, that person was different from that moment on. So how hard is it to bless somebody that's persecuting you? The Greek word persecute means to hunt down. This is not somebody that just kind of didn't say hi in the grocery store. This isn't somebody that anonymously commented on a YouTube video. This is somebody that's hunting you specifically down. Doesn't like you, hates you, wants to cause you trouble. On Sunday, we heard Peter write, don't return evil for evil. Don't return an insult for an insult, but give a blessing instead. And Peter knows when you give a blessing. Here's what happened to Peter. When the Lord blessed him with a ship full of fish that he didn't deserve, he fell on his knees and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Because the blessing of the Lord revealed something in him. Peter knows that the blessing of the Lord changes people. And I don't want to bless people I don't like. Lord, when do I get to curse people I don't like? The book of James says, how can you bless and curse at the same time? How can fresh water and salt water flow from the same stream? Bless and do not curse. So, man, how hard is it to let this guy come to your church? I mean, that's an awkward first service. Absolutely. <laughs> On the front row, we have a special guest, the guy that took your family members away and threw them in prison. On this, right in front of us today, we're going to give him a chance to speak for himself. Here's the guy that put some of our friends to death. But I want you to see how God used two people who were willing to open their heart willing to shut down what they knew and what they thought and willing to open their heart to people that God had opened his heart to. Because here's the easiest thing to do. When, when, you, when you struggle with showing mercy, when you struggle with forgiveness, here's how you put it in perspective. How much has he forgiven you? How much did he do to bridge the gap between God and you? You're the one that made the gap. You're the one that deserved death. I'm the one that deserved death. How much mercy has he shown me? And when you realize that, you realize you've got no reason to hold anything against anyone else. Jesus told the famous parable when he said there was a man who owed billions of dollars. Now, I'm, I'm translating it into common today's currency. Billions of dollars to his master. Couldn't repay it. The master said, you know what? I'm gonna, his boss said, I'm going to forgive your debt. It's completely forgiven. Can you imagine being forgiven billions of dollars of debt? He's forgiven. Immediately he goes and he finds somebody who owes him a few thousand. And he shakes him down and says, give me my money. And the guy says, I can't pay it, but I'll pay it soon. He says, forget that. And he calls him and gets him thrown into debtor's prison. His boss calls him back in the room and says, I forgave you so much money. That guy barely owed you anything. How dare you? How dare you hold that against him? Get out of my sight, his boss says. Now, can you imagine? Here's why Jesus told that parable. Because here's us that have been forgiven so great a sin, forgiven so much debt against God. How could we ever turn around and say, you've done too much to me, I can't ever let that go? Can you open your heart to the ones that God has opened his heart to? Here's the question. I'm not just asking if you can let it go. Can you go and pray for them like Ananias prayed for Saul? Can you go and put your arm around them like Barnabas did to Paul and vouch for them? 
Could you be their best friend like Barnabas was to Paul? That's a tough one, isn't it? (laughs) I was going with you. You said, let it go. I could do that. You said, pray. I can do that from a distance. But I don't want to be best friends with somebody like that. I know. I've been there. I get it. What groups of people are you willing to open your heart to? What kind of person are you not willing to open your heart to? Remember, Saul hunted these guys down specifically, and God used them to reach him. The Lord's not going to let you off. It's just (laughs) any easier. (laughs) We've been placed in a position to be like him in this world. So as Jesus forgave us, so we're going to forgive a lot of people. As Jesus loved us, so we're going to love a lot of people. And you're going to stand up for people you never thought you'd stand up for. Now, can I just ask who you're willing to associate with? Who you're willing to go pray for? Who you're willing to vouch for? Who you're willing to be a friend to? Who you're willing to bring to church and introduce them to other people? Because you know what? We all could do that. Well, you know, it used to be in the past century, the person you would never think to do that was, was that, was that you know, that, that guy in the gutter that was, you know, he was all, you know, he's high on something. He was, he was you, know, uh, you know, a hobo or, you know, a bum or whatever. That was the guy the last century. But you know what? The church has come such a long way. And usually we're looking for people like that. We love people like that. But what about somebody that's the opposite political party as you? What about that person that's such a, such a strong atheist that they've come after you at your job and they've caused you trouble and they made you lose your promotion? And they, they, you know, or maybe somebody that's talked about you to other people, someone that seems set on destroying your life. Could you be the person that puts your arm around them when Jesus visits them? Now I want you to trust the Holy Spirit like you don't trust anybody else. Trust that God can do the prep work here. God had prepared the Ethiopian. God prepared Saul. Our job is to be obedient and walk through the doors he's already opened. And as you do that, as you walk through the doors he's already opened, you trust him. Trust him. If he sends you, he's not going to hurt you. If he sends you, he's taking care of you. If he sent you, he knows what he's doing. Trust God and be obedient and open your heart to whoever he opens his heart to. Because he's the Lord. And when you said, I've used this example before, but when you gave him your accounts payable and you said, Lord, I've got too much debt. I owe too much. I've been a terrible person. I've been a bad guy. He said, that's okay. I'm going to forgive all of this. You gave him your accounts payable. He also obtained your accounts receivable. And every debt that's owed you, he's also forgiven. So we look to him and we say, okay, I'm willing I don't know about you, and I don't want to shake anybody up. There are terrorists in the world that have done terrible, horrible things. I mean, there's not, even, there's not, not a big part of me that ever believes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 100% confident that a guy like Osama bin Laden is not today in heaven. And the reason is, is because he's rejected Jesus. Not because he was a worse guy than somebody else, because there's no other way to the Father but through Jesus. I don't think that guy went to heaven at all. But what if he had come to you? What if he ran into him in the desert? Now, some of you say, well, I put a bullet in his brain real quick. <laughs> but what if the Lord told you, I want to 
Speak to this man. Now, the reason I'm using this guy's dead, so it's not going to happen. Some of you are going, I don't know, I don't know. You're backing up in your seat. I can already see you curling up. (laughs) It's not going to happen. He's dead. He's gone. But imagine if it had. Could you have forgiven that guy? Could you have introduced him to your friends at church? Could you have stood up for him when no one else did? Because this is what Saul was to the church. Saul was the terrorist. And God sent one of those believers to lay his hands on him. And God sent another believer to vouch for him. We need people like that in the church today. Let's stand up together. Nobody's too far from the grace of God. Nobody's too far from the hand of his Holy Spirit. So I want you to open your heart. Let it be open. Now maybe today, maybe tonight. God's already been dealing with you with somebody about somebody that you've just cut off, somebody you don't want to have anything to do with, somebody that maybe hurts you or hurts your friends. Sometimes it's easier to forgive someone that hurts you than it is to forgive someone that hurts your family or your friends. Guys, you know what this is like. You know if somebody comes after you, someone hits you, you can take it, but someone hits your kid, someone hits your wife, well, that's hard to get over. I want you to believe that if Jesus could forgive us, it doesn't mean you you let them go on hitting somebody. No, of course not. You don't say, I forgive you, hit them again. No, you don't do that. (laughs) But when they come to a point of repentance, what are you going to do? When they've repented and the Lord's granted them mercy, will you grant them the same mercy? Will you let God send you to people you'd never want him to send you to? Because we all have a few people in our hearts that we think like that. If the Lord told you today to go to their house and give them some money, you would not want to do it. If the Lord sent you to their house to go pray for them, you would not want to do it. I'm asking you to open your hearts in the new way. Lord, we're your people. We are not, from the outside, we're nothing extraordinary. But we know that we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords living on the inside of us. That we're your people, we're your sons and your daughters. So we ask, Lord, that you would empower us to forgive like we never thought we could forgive. To love like we thought we could never love. And to love who we thought we never could love. That you would open our hearts to the same people that you've opened your heart to. That we could see people like you see them instead of how we've heard of them. Lord, send us to the people that are the worst and the meanest and the most hated and the most feared. Send us and prepare their hearts, prepare their their minds, open their eyes so that they may see. Lord, we commit to you right now that as we've been shown great mercy, so we will show great mercy. As we've been forgiven much, so we will forgive much. In Jesus' name. We bless you, Lord. Open our hearts. Expand our hearts to think bigger, to love deeper than we ever have before. And Lord, I'm asking you right now to open doors. Just like you opened a door for Ananias. You already prepared the way. You prepared the way for Philip. You opened doors that no man could shut, and they just walked through them. Open doors of opportunity and utterance for our friends here tonight. Lord, that they'd see your opportunities, they'd see your hand opening a door, and they'd not be afraid to walk through it. They wouldn't be intimidated and say, I'm nothing special. I'm not the guy. I'm not the girl for this. I'm not the person you should send. But instead, they'd say, Lord, if you sent me, I can do it. If you've called me, you've equipped me. In Jesus' name.
Amen.